The Hamlet Podcast. Hello, and welcome to this weekly exploration of Shakespeare's Hamlet with me, your host, Connor Hanretty. We start a whole new scene this week, with several important characters in the show making their first appearance. The first scene of the play certainly gave us a sense of the political climate in Denmark, and I'm being ferociously careful not to use a certain quote until we come to it later in Act One. But now, this new scene begins to answer some of the questions we might begin to have. After the murky intrigue of our trio and the ghost up on the ramparts, we now get a bit of grandeur, a bit of pageantry, to combat all of the gloom we've heard so far. This scene begins with a stage direction calling for a flourish, a trumpet sounding, to announce the arrival of the king. Now, stage directions in Shakespeare can be a very contested area, since very often what reaches us on the page is the generous contribution of a well-meaning editor who might feel that their suggestion is the only way and a means of enlightening the text. I personally had the privilege of attending a workshop once with the then head of Lambda, Rodney Cotier, who gave a thrilling exploration of the first scene of King Lear, Act 1, Scene 1, King Lear, and how, if you use the folio and its text as your touchstone, with a little bit of logic, the scene is a masterpiece of stagecraft and political or theatrical economy. And every edition of the play that we had in the room that day, and we're talking 10 or 15 of them, had erroneous suggested stage directions getting in the way. Go figure. Meanwhile, we are in Denmark, not Lear's Britain, and the stage directions are helpful in Hamlet, at very least at the beginning of the scenes. First person introduced here is the most important, and that is King Claudius. Curiously, he is never addressed by name in the play. So if you didn't manage to buy a programme, or if there wasn't one available, uh, there's a chance that you'd never know his name even was Claudius, and we might talk about his name itself a little bit later. He's followed by Gertrude, the Queen, and then the rest of the court files in. Depending on the number of actors in the company, this could stretch to being a rather impressive scene, hopefully giving a greater sense of the Danish royal house and its power at work. As this unfolds, then, we have a king, and he has a queen with him, and there are courtiers and councillors, and our beloved stage directions also mention that Hamlet is present. This young Hamlet was just mentioned a few moments ago at the end of the previous scene. Horatio and his friends left us as they planned to go inform him of the ghost. So all of this is going through our minds, we hope, as the court arranges itself on the stage and then the king addresses the assembled company. Though yet of Hamlet, our dear brother's death, the memory be green, and that it us befitted to bear our hearts in grief and our whole kingdom to be contracted in one brow of woe, Yet so far hath discretion fought with nature, that we with wisest sorrow think on him, together with remembrance of ourselves. This begins to answer some questions, certainly. This king is the brother of the dead king. He acknowledges that the country is still in mourning for the deceased. It's a brilliant image to liken the entire country to a single face, contracted in one brow of woe. This is a smart, sophisticated speaker. He acknowledges that it's been hard to balance discretion, or essentially keeping a stiff upper lip, that has fought with nature or the impulse to cry or mourn all this time. 
and he acknowledges that we with wisest sorrow think on him together with remembrance of ourselves. Life goes on, and we must survive this. All sounds kind of like things a good leader might have to say, although his use of we, sometimes referring to himself in the royal third person, and sometimes we in terms of all of Denmark, is very clever because it shifts between the two. So he continues. Therefore our sometime sister, now our queen, the imperial jointress to this warlike state, have we, as twere with a defeated joy, with an auspicious and a dropping eye, with mirth in funeral, and with dirge in marriage, in equal scale weighing delight and dole, taken to wife. Nor have we herein barred your better wisdoms, which have freely gone with this affair along, for all our thanks. Well now, he has married the dead king's wife. This is rather a fast move for him, and for her, of course. But the king does acknowledge this, with his elegant list of poetic images, all designed to assuage any feelings that people might have about such a match, and so soon after the funeral. A jointress is a widow. She, having been married to the king of Denmark, naturally had her own rights. But it seems that this was not a country wherein a woman alone could become queen, even though the play was written in such a country. The king's point is very simple. Our sometime sister, now our queen, have we taken to wife. But this information is broken up to such an extent that you'd be forgiven for thinking that he was almost trying to bury the lead. We get all of these careful images, a defeated joy, an auspicious and a dropping eye, mirth in funeral and dearth in marriage. It's all very careful, almost heavy-handedly acknowledging, a lot of acknowledging here, that the sorrow of the funeral and the loss of the previous king is as much in the air as the happy occasion of this marriage. He's laying it on pretty thick because he knows that there must be a few eyebrows raised. But before any of the eyebrows of his court can be so bold as to incline, Claudius has words for them. He reminds them that their better wisdoms were all terribly welcome, and that they, his courtiers, have approved of this doubtless political rather than romantic move. Is there a slight chill, perhaps, in the way that he reminds them that they've all freely gone along with it? Certainly there's something for an actor to explore in this role, and then even better, he thanks them for their approval of the match. Having shored himself up against any discussion of the marriage right now, at least, the king gets down to business. As we heard during the night, there's trouble brewing over in Norway, and he has an update. Now follows that you know, young Fortinbras, holding a weak supposal of our worth, or thinking by our late dear brother's death our state to be disjoint and out of frame, colleague with the dream of his advantage, he hath not failed to pester us with message, importing the surrender of those lands lost by his father, with all bonds of law, to our most valiant brother. So much for him. Claudius speaks in, in rather long lines, paragraphs almost, there's a stateliness and a political acumen to the way that he addresses the court. This is a very smooth operator. He explains that young Fortinbras, the Norwegian prince whose father Claudius' brother defeated, either thinks that Claudius is a weak excuse for a king, or that Denmark is a bit of a mess since King Hamlet died, 
or else he's just focused on what he wants to achieve himself, which is the defeat of Denmark in revenge for his father, which Claudius very cleverly calls a dream, which may not come true. Whatever it is, this young prince is sending frequent letters complaining about the lands that were forfeited, as described in the previous scene. Claudius gets a good dig in, though. He reminds the court that these lands were won for Denmark with all bonds of law. The defeat was legal, and the lands therefore are now Danish, and that's that. Shakespeare writes a physical moment into the line itself for the king here. Towards the end of this line, there's room for a slight pause in which the king can do something dismissive with all of these young Norwegians' letters. These can range from tearing them up or burning them or any number of possibilities. The point is that young Fortinbras isn't going to be getting anywhere in Denmark any time soon. And as Claudius himself completes the line of text, so much for him. Claudius, of course, has plenty more to say in his very regal first speech that sets him up as a pragmatic, popular ruler here in Denmark. Or does it? Join me next week and we'll find out more. I have to say it was really exciting to meet some listeners this weekend in London. Do please keep tuning in, and if you're enjoying these podcasts, get the word out, and do feel free to explore the growing quantity of materials on the website, thehamletpodcast.com. Thank you for listening.